listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Hello, thank you so much for joining me. How do you feel today? Are you covered? Are you covered? Do you have enough insurance in your life? Can I interest you in an insurance policy? Does anyone need any insurance whatsoever? Do you sell insurance? We are going to get to the federal campaign trail and to which federal leader is telling you the biggest lie today. It's like Groundhog Day in September, featuring Andrew Scheer in the role of Ned Ryerson. Do you have life insurance? Yes, it's Groundhog Day. As we go around and around and again about these kind of issues that really don't mean anything, do they? Well, we're going to start, though, in the education sector. Ontario's education workers have begun their work-to-rule campaign. The 55,000 custodians, clerical workers, and early childhood educators are in the middle of stalled contract talks. The education minister, Stephen Lecce, says it's quote-unquote deeply disappointing. Talks were unfruitful. No fruit. He says student safety is the government's priority during this work-to-rule campaign. Your child's safety is important, the hallways will not be swept, will not be mopped, so on and so forth in this work to rule. Meanwhile, at Queen's Park this morning, an opportunity presents itself, does it not? Especially if you're looking to maybe, I don't know, be the liberal leader. Liberal leadership candidate Michael Cotto, who's the MPP for Don Valley East, pardon me, Don Valley West, former minister of the Wynn government and also a minister for quite some time for the Liberals. Here he is demanding that Doug Ford immediately reconvene the legislature. We want the legislature open so we can bring back democracy. This is something that uh, we need to be doing in order to hold this government accountable. You may know that the Ontario legislature's on an extended break does not return until after the federal election. Everybody's saying that's so that uh, Mr. Ford can keep a low profile and try and keep out of Andrew Sheary's way. So that was then, the, this morning, Mr. Cotto saying, bring back the legislature, it's outrageous. Okay, so I see this thing on Twitter this morning, so I fire up my angry thumbs when I see that my colleague from TVO, John Michael McGrath, good uh, reporter, good journalist, he's tweeting about it. I fire up the old angry thumbs, and this is what I put on Twitter. Can someone please ask where Cotto's outrage was when Dalton McGinty prorogued Parliament for months to avoid possible contempt charges from the House? Boom! Yeah, take that. Lowering the boom on him. And then bang! Check out this retweet of my tweet from the PC Minister of Tourism, Lisa McLeod, who says, and if I recall correctly, it was during labor strife in the education sector after Bill 115. Oh, man, I'm making hay. Here's the background on all of this. Mr. McGinty announced in October 2012 he's going to resign as premier and then decided to shut the legislature indefinitely. And all of that came as questions mounted about the cancellation of those two Toronto-area power plant projects that affected five liberal-held ridings. Gas plants! So... My colleague here, John Michael McGrath, as I threw that onto Twitter, does me a solid because he's actually in the media studio with Mr. Koto, and he lobs this firebomb at Koto. Go! Dalton McGinty prorogued the legislature in 2011 to give the Liberal Party time to 
put some scandals to bed and you know name a new leader. Uh, what did you think of McGinty's prorogation back then? Um, so back then, uh, and it's interesting. I actually had to go back. I think it was into the Globe and Mail to uh, uh, to see my exact quote. But I uh, said that the people of uh, Don Valley East uh, uh, wouldn't accept uh, uh, government going into prorogation, and uh, it was something that I was uncomfortable with then. And it's on the record that uh, you know I was a backbencher at the time, and uh, you know I criticized my own uh, party uh, for making that decision uh, then. Obviously, there's a bit of a difference. There was a transition of government back then. Okay. Fine. Let me just check the archives on that. October 18th, 2012, from the Globe and Mail, liberal backbencher Michael Cotto said prorogation was not his first choice, but he will make the best of it by spending time in his riding. Okay, well, maybe maybe I should have checked that. Uh, fine. Move on. Nothing to see here. And by the way, John Michael McGrath, shame on you for not doing more research for before asking that question. <laughs> All right, let's move to the federal campaign, shall we? And who needs insurance anyway? Ned Ryerson. Bang! Yeah, Ned Ryerson. Neddy's going to sell you some insurance. I just love Groundhog Day. And coming up on the Alan Carter Radio Program, we have a giveaway. We never do this. We have a giveaway all week. We are giving out family passes to the RV show here in Toronto. If you dig in the RV and, and you like to take the kids, just pay attention because there's a skill testing question coming up about Groundhog Day. And particularly, Ned Ryerson. Bang! So the liberals are asking Saskatchewan's insurance industry watchdogs to investigate conservative leader Andrew Scheer for allegedly falsely claiming he had once worked as an insurance broker in that province. If someone was to play him on movie, in a redo of Groundhog Day, who would you get maybe to play Mr. Ryerson? Maybe Mr. Shear. Biographies of Shear posted on the Conservative Party's w- current website and his past MP and leadership websites have repeatedly referred to the Conservative leader as a one-time insurance broker in Saskatchewan. Here now this morning is Andrew Shear trying to clarify whether or not he was ever licensed to sell insurance. I received my accreditation under the Canadian Accredited Insurance uh, Broker Program for general insurance, uh, and uh, and, I, uh, and and I left before uh, obtaining the, the full license. But I did receive that accreditation. Do you sell insurance? Yes, he sold insurance, but he left before getting the full accreditation. Is this a tempest in the teapot? Is it going to carry over? I think today, at least, it has slightly knocked Mr. Shear off of his uh, messaging, and it has given ammunition to the liberals. So let's get to now the prime lying minister, Justin Trudeau. Oh, wait, wait. Was that harsh? I shouldn't call JT a liar? In the middle of an election campaign, I I shouldn't point that out? I will just refer you to his numerous somewhat erroneous denials about SSE Lavalin. But let's get to the money, shall we? A re-elected Justin Trudeau government would impose new taxes on the wealthy, large international corporations, foreign housing speculators, and tech giants, all to help cover the cost of billions in new spending in tax breaks. This all now in the liberal platform that has just been released over the weekend. And even so, with all that new revenue coming in, the platform projects four years of deficits, $27.4 billion next year, falling to $21 billion 
by the fourth year of the mandate. That's a $21 billion, $21 billion deficit four years from now. At a time when everybody agrees that, yeah, the economy has been on a tear. Times are good, but it looks like there are headwinds ahead of us. There will be a 10% excise tax on luxury cars, boats, and personal aircraft with price tags of more than hundred grand. So if you're in the market to get yourself a personal aircraft, you could pay more. Tech giants like Google, Amazon, and Facebook with global revenues of at least a billion dollars a year are going to face a 3% tax on revenue generated by the sale of online advertising and users' personal data. Did you know that Google, Amazon, and Facebook in recent studies appear to account for somewhat in the neighborhood of 70% of ad dollars spent in this country? If you don't think that has an impact on the journalism that you get to read and see, then you're kidding yourself. And if you don't think that that might be behind the fact that time broke the blackface scandal and Gawker broke Rob Ford and so on and so forth, then you're kidding yourself. Non-resident foreigners who own vacant property in cities like Vancouver and Toronto will also face a national tax. It's all part of the liberal platform. And the liberals would crack down on tax loopholes, they say, allow large corporations to excessively deduct debt to artificially reduce the amount of taxes they pay. Not much insurance being sold here, but a $27.4 billion deficit next year. That is the promise from the liberals in their platform. I want to swing back to what's going on in our schools as the union representing 55,000 custodians, clerical workers, early childhood educators, already now on a work-to-rule campaign. This in a bid to pressure the provincial government into making concessions in contract negotiations. Will it work? Quote, what the provincial government and the trustees association has done is highly irresponsible. Unquote said Laura Walton, who is president of CUPE's Ontario School Board Council of Unions, which negotiates centrally on behalf of the union's school board employees. Here, in response, is the Minister of Education, Stephen Lecce, on this radio station just a short while ago. We remain laser-focused on landing a deal that keeps their kids in the class, that protects the services that are so critical to the success of our young people. But we've been clear that the one outstanding issue is absenteeism, which is high. And we, don't, we think it actually could undermine the student experience, the student success. And that's why uh, we're looking at focusing on that issue. And that is one of the central stumbling blocks, the fact that members can take uh, extended periods away with pay. And that is a, uh, a major issue at the negotiating table. lots to talk about, including a new report in the Toronto Star today that raises questions about those spiffy new streetcars in Toronto. You know, the long delayed ones built by Bombardier, we finally have them, but are they actually functioning like they should? The TTC has apparently been keeping two sets of statistics about the reliability of its new Bombardier-made streetcars. There's a public version, the agency says, is proof that the cars are, quote, performing exceptionally well. And there is a version that has not been published. 
And that indicates the vehicles experienced 72% more instances of delays than publicly reported. Joining me on the line to talk about his story, which you can read in the Star today, is transportation expert with the Star, Ben Spur. Hi, Ben. Hi, thanks for having me. So what is the explanation for having two sets of stats? Well, so there's a, there's a good reason to keep the, the stat that they have been publishing, and, and that what the stat that they have been publishing measures is all the faults that are deemed uh, re- the responsibility of Bombardier, so that if the streetcar breaks down, um, they, if they determine that the, the root cause was something that Bombardier was that contractually responsible for, then th- that's what they record. Uh, and there's a good reason to record that because, you know, if uh, Bombardier, uh, there are penalties to Bombardier, essentially, if it doesn't meet certain uh, targets and all that kind of thing. But of course, that doesn't really tell the full story of how these vehicles are actually functioning. Um, and so, of course, the, what I found interesting about the story is just there's this whole other kind of set that I think tells a, a, a better picture of, of what's actually happening with these cars and, and that the public was not really aware of. Right, so that the, there are issues that may not be requiring Bombardier to step up, but that doesn't mean the streetcar is not stopped or, or some issue with it. Yeah, and I think what's also interesting is that the TTC didn't make clear that that was really the number that they were presenting. They, they For the other streetcars in their fleet, the older model streetcars, in the exact same report that they'd be reporting these kind of contractual Bombardier figures, they'd be reporting um, the same type of uh, reliability figures for other streetcars that, that took into account all of the problems that they were having. So it, it made it look like a kind of apples-to-apples comparison when in actual fact the, the number for the Bombardier, the new Bombardier cars, was, was something different. Do we have a sense of how well they're performing? And again, I I appreciate that you can't apples to apples compare a new uh, car to an old one, but how well are they doing? Well, so uh, the, it, it gets pretty complex and, and technical, and I'm not, not a streetcar engineer, so uh, it's a little hard for me to, to eyeball myself. But it, basically, they're going something like 16,000 kilometers without a, a fault that causes them to get out of service. So, um, you know, that, that's decent compared to the, the older cars, but the older cars are, are really old. So, of course, you would expect the new cars to uh, do a lot better than that. But I think the, re- the reason why it's important to have transparency around this issue is that, you know, these cars are supposed to last us the next uh, you know 30 years these things are going to be kind of the workhorses of the the streetcar fleet and we, we if they're having problems now of course that that points to some potential issues uh well down the road so i think uh, we just need to uh have a, a greater understanding of, of to what these cars are actually doing and, and i think the tdc they've acknowledged now as a result of this uh, story that i think that they could do a bit better at explaining uh the numbers they're reporting there was a lot of back and forth uh, previously from TTC to Bombardier, some bad blood. Do you think that there is an attempt here to smooth the waters and maybe that might be behind these two sets? It, it's tough to speculate. Um, you know, I spoke to a member of the, the TTC board, uh, Jim Karagiannis, who said that he, he worries that the TTC management's uh, kind of approach to this is just to, because of all the problems with getting these cars in the first place, that they just want to get these things in the door, so to speak, and maybe sort out reliability issues uh, far down the road. So, um, you know, I think that's uh, that's potentially a, a valid concern, but I haven't, uh, you know, I can't say exactly what's motivating uh, TTC leadership. But uh, as I say, I think we just want to be sure that uh, that as we get these cars, that they're going to last us for a long time. Well answered, Ben. Always a dangerous territory when you ask reporters about motive. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Ben Spur is the transportation reporter with the Toronto Star, and you can read his story about streetcar reliability numbers with those Bombardier cars in the paper today. Thanks, Ben. Thanks very much for having me.
Yeah, there are several studies that show alcohol-related harms have sharply increased in many high-income countries, including Canada. But the sharpest rise, and this is very disturbing, has been seen in young women. Dangerous drinking practices are on the rise, especially in young women, according to a recent study from the Ottawa Hospital. What that study found over a 14-year period was a 110% doubling of, or more than doubling, obviously, of the number of emergency room visits caused by alcohol in women, contrasted with a 78% increase in men. Younger individuals had, by far, the largest increases in these emergency room visits caused by alcohol. This number is staggering, a 240% increase in women aged 25 to 29, and a 145% increase in men. This study from the University of Hospital, again looking at emergency room visits because of alcohol over a 14-year period. Earlier this morning, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto released its latest alcohol policy framework, and there was a symposium and a talk about what this means. And to talk more about it, I am pleased to welcome to the program CAMH's Chief of Addictions, Dr. Leslie Buckley. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for uh, for highlighting this issue. Why? It's such a big question, but let's start with it. A 240% increase. Can we point to any particular reasons that stand out? You know, I don't think we can within, you know, with certainty know exactly what's causing it, but we do know there are a few factors that might be playing a role. So one is uh, about the level of psychological distress that young women are experiencing. So the high school survey that you probably have heard about um, comes out on a yearly basis and looks at substance use in youth, but also looks at psychological distress and other factors. And our highest rate ever for women uh, was shown this year to be present, um, and it was a rate of 62% of grade 12 young women were reporting moderate to severe psychological distress. So that's certainly one factor. So a psychological uh, distress that weighs heavier, heavier on young women than men could be driving young women to drink. Yes, so that could be part. And then, you know, something we always look at when we're thinking about drinking patterns is what are the expectations and the norms of the individual? So it could be, you know, related to social media and people posting, um, you know, pictures of them at a party. And there might, there might be a growing sense coming from sort of forms of media that we're not used to that, you know, maybe, maybe you know, there's a, this sort of increased permission or even suggestion um, or push to, to party or drink more that maybe, you know, is fueling a little bit of this increase as well. So social norms and ones that perhaps even, you know, researchers or parents just don't see under the radar perhaps is pushing this. Right. So sort of this inflated um, idea of how much other people are drinking or partying because of the photos that come through. When CAMH talks about a alcohol policy framework, what does that mean? You know, basically, we introduce the issue and we talk about harms that occur. And then, um, you know, as part of our mandate, we're really always interested in social policy and trying to put out information uh, to people who make decisions about about these things and, and, of course, make some recommendations for policy changes. When it comes to social responsibility, pricing, where do you stand on that? So pricing, we 
have good evidence. We know that um, when the price is lower, the alcohol um, consumption increases. So we would not like to see that lowered. And in fact, it would be great if that increased at the rate of inflation. And then what about in Ontario, the push to expand point of sale? So that's another key factor. So we do know, uh, we call that accessibility. So whether it's hours of availability or um, just easier locations, we know that also increases alcohol consumption. We do have direct correlation between access to alcohol and consumption. Yes. And do we have any kind of breakdown on in terms of whether that impacts younger women more so than other portions of the population? We don't have that data yet. That's such a good question. That's something that a few people have raised. You know, is there a difference between males and females for which factors push which way? And when you see these numbers, because they are staggering, 240% increase in women, 145% increase in men in hospital or emergency room visits caused by alcohol, give me a better sense of is that binge drinking that drives that emergency room visits? Can you qualify that a little bit for me? So it really does capture a few different things. So it does capture the binge drinking. So, you know, intoxication, blacking out, something that's sort of more acute in somebody who may not actually have a dependence on alcohol. And that's, you know, a big area that we feel people may miss, that, you know, a lot of the harms of alcohol are really occurring in people who may not be dependent or have control issues, um, sort of that have lasted over years, but really might be using alcohol in a very dangerous way, as you mentioned, calling it binge drinking. Um, But then there's another component in that same data set, Uh, which looks at, you know, emergency room visits because of, you know, end-stage liver cirrhosis and really some of the uh, long-standing sort of chronic conditions that we see develop with um, a longer alcohol use. CAMH's chief of addictions is Dr. Leslie Buckley and has joined me on the line to talk about what is a troubling development in in terms of research and what we're seeing in terms of alcohol abuse, especially by young women. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks for having me. Let's do a little bit of news. Low-price fashion chain Forever 21 is going to close all 44 of its Canadian stores and more than 150 locations in the United States while restructuring its global business under bankruptcy protection. Now, I knew there was something up with Forever 21 when I was shopping with my 13-year-old daughter earlier this year. Just a month or so ago, we were at a outlet mall, and I said, hey, there's the Forever 21. You want to go in there? And she looked at me and said, I would never buy anything from there, Dad, ever. And I, well, I said, well, why? And she said, a couple years ago, that's everything. Everybody, it's all everybody ever wanted to wear was Forever 21. And now you just can't wear any of that. And when the 13-year-olds start telling you that, you are in some trouble. Here's a report on the bankruptcy in the United States of Forever 21. The teen specialty store Forever 21 now struggling to stay forever in the green. The fashion chain filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection Sunday, citing a drop in sales due to a drop in mall traffic combined with pricey rents. The company says growing pains due to expansions and fast-changing shopper trends are also dragging down its bottom line. It plans to shutter nearly 180 stores here in the U.S. and most of its international locations, focusing, it says, on its best-performing stores. 
Michelle Franzen, ABC News. That is the latest on Forever 21. And speaking of kids, advocates in the United States say that a recent arrest of a first grader in Orlando is actually not an isolated incident. When six-year-old Kaya Roll of Orlando kicked a staff member at her elementary school, she was handcuffed, taken to jail, and charged with battery. Her case is unusual in that it prompted an apology from Police Chief Orlando Rolon. I can only imagine how traumatic this was for everyone involved. FBI statistics show that between 2013 and 2017, nearly 27,000 children under 10 were arrested in the U.S., Juvenile justice advocates tell ABC News that police and school resource officers simply are not trained to deal with the children they're sworn to protect. Jim Ryan, ABC News. Yeah, but what if the kid's a real jerk and deserves to be arrested? Like, what if it's what if the kid is doing something stupid and deserves to be arrested? I got a, you know what? I got a nine year, I got eleven year old. I don't have a nine year old. He was nine at one point. I got eleven year old. Every once in a while, I think that kid should get hauled off to jail. I mean, not really. But then there's this story. A nine-year-old boy took his grandmother's car on a dangerous joyride up and down the I-75 in Ohio. And witnesses say at times he was speeding 144 kilometers an hour on the interstate. A sergeant with the Ohio State Patrol says the road trip on Sunday ended when the boy crashed into a van. When you're nine years old, you don't have a you know constant eye on him. He's you know can fend for himself for the most part, and just thought he was in another room doing other things. And then she went outside, and noticed her car was gone. Yeah, police are investigating because now after they've done that, they actually have arrested him. They said Grandma didn't know what he was doing; that he was there. He's facing a number of charge charges, but he was later released into the custody of his Grammy. How about this one? I love this one out of Detroit. Police are investigating after motorists traveling through a Detroit suburb were stunned to look up at one of those electronic billboards, you know, like the ones alongside the gardener, except for this thing wasn't trying to sell you a cell phone. Uh Uh-uh. A little bit of a blue movie playing on the electronic billboard. Saturday night, Dr. Justin Camo was driving home on I-75 north near Auburn Hills when something caught his eye. A pornographic video being shown on an electronic billboard. You kind of see people have started to break a lot behind me because I think they were doing the same thing, like a double take. You don't see that every day. Still unclear what led to the video being shown. Was it a mistake, a prank, a hack? It's one of those digital things that's easily to get hacked. The Auburn Hills Police Department is investigating. Ryan Burrow, ABC News. (laughs) whoops what is going on Uh, you know what i don't know if you do this my dad does this he just randomly reads out the words on signs as we drive down the road he just he'll look up there and he'll just say siemens um well i'll just leave that right there Leonardo da Vinci is now celebrated as one of history's greatest geniuses but during his life he was mocked by his fellow artists A new book on Leonardo da Vinci reveals the Italian genius was mocked for being a redhead and gay by other famous artists of his time. Leonardo and the Book of Doom by author Simon Hewitt focuses on a little-known comic strip from the late 15th century that depicts a caricature of the left-handed red-headed Leonardo drawing in one of his famed notebooks as he salivates over strapping younger men. Red hair was considered almost freakish in Milan at the time. Another image Hewitt discovered is by a fellow artist who shows Leonardo in a sexual act with another man. Megan Williams, ABC News, Rome. couple things jump out at me there. One, I've been saying his name wrong all this time. Leonardo. Leonardo. 
And also, you know, that's not right. He should not have been persecuted, obviously, for his sexual orientation. But as for being a redhead, gingers ain't got no reason. Let's get to more on what's going on in our schools today, where QP members have now launched Work to Rule campaign. Here from Priya Sam this morning is the statement from the union to their members about what they should and should not be doing. Uh, now, the union representing them did release a statement. So this came from QP's Ontario School Board Council of Unions. They say that the workers will stop working overtime. They will not be performing any extra duties. The instructions to them are very detailed. We took a look at them. Uh, so for custodians, for example, they're instructed to not carry or transport photocopy paper or packages. Also, they're told not to clean ministry unfunded areas. So that includes hallways, office areas, gymnasiums as well. That is Priya Sam this morning talking about what the union is telling its members. Morgan Campbell is a global news journalist who is working on this story for us. Hi, Morgan. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me. What's the reaction been from parents so far? Well, as you can imagine, parents are concerned. Um, They're concerned because... Clearly, you know, if you have janitors not sweeping hallways or taking care of the gymnasium, for example, it poses a safety risk. Um, but if you want to take this one step further, Alan, sit down and chat with somebody who has a child in one of these schools who requires a little extra attention, may have special needs. Now, that's where the real concerns are, are, are coming, um, mainly in terms of safety, communication, obviously, with uh, instructors and, and EAs and whatnot. Um, but, you know, some of those extras that are being taken away, um, you know, we know that many students who are who suffer, you know, I'm sorry, not suffer, but who have, who are on the autism spectrum, um, don't deal well with change in routine. And this is clearly a major change in routine for some of these students. It's going to be difficult adapting. Uh, The minister saying that uh, student safety is the number one priority. What's the latest on the back and forth? Obviously, neither side's at the table. Well, they're they're definitely not at the table. And Alan, it appears that the students are now going to be caught uh, caught in the crosshairs. Um, Here's the deal. Toronto District School Board, uh, I spoke with uh, with uh, Ryan Bird earlier today. He told me that, you know, safety is paramount and that, um, you know, if need be, they're going to look at, you know, stepping in if something becomes extremely dangerous. Now, he wouldn't come out and say that the principal is going to start sweeping the hallways, um, but, you know, if it gets to that point, clearly some type of... Um, some type of action on management's parts. Uh, management's part is going to have to be taken. Morgan Campbell is a global news reporter who is working on this story for us today. Thank you so much, Morgan, for being on the program. Alan, thanks for having me. All right, let's get back to it, shall we? I promised a bit of a. Uh, I promised a, a, a bit of a giveaway. Did I not? I did indeed. And the promise was, if you could name the name of the character who, in Groundhog Day, do you sell insurance? talks to Bill Murray and says, Do you have life insurance? Who is it? And of course I raise this because whether or not you have a license to sell insurance is a big deal on the campaign trail today. Did Andrew Scheer lie 
about his ability to sell insurance. Did he not have the license to do so, or did he just not do it at all? Well, on the line, we've got a family pack of tickets to the RV show. John is on the line. John, do you know the name of the character? I know the name of the character. Everybody knows the name of the character. It's Ned. Ned Ryerson. Ned Ryerson. Bang! Dang y'all, of course. <laughs> uh, while I got you on the line, and uh, we're going to get you those tickets, do you think that's a big deal, this whole Andrew Shear, whether he had a license or not? I think it's about as big a deal as the Blackface thing is, man. It's not really that big, that big of a deal. Not going to change the way you're going to vote? No, nothing's going to change my vote. If you want to change my vote, tell me what you can do for me, not what the other guy did wrong. I'll tell you what I can do for you. I can get you four tickets to the RV show. I can uh, collect those tickets and go right on. Thanks. Beauty. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> Appreciate that. All right. We want to talk a little bit about what really was dominating the news late last week, and that was that climate strike and the big march on Friday. And you saw the pictures from all around the world. You saw the pictures here in Toronto, the protest on the lawn of Queen's Park, the march through the center of the city, the call to action from young people from around the world. But let's do a bit of a reality check here, because the march is done, and the enthusiasm is, well, it wanes, because all of us only have the attention span of a gnat. So the question is, is the marching and all of the talk by young people actually going to translate into political action? Keith Brooks is Programs Director at Environmental Defense and joins me on the line to talk about this. Hi, Keith. Hi there. Did you know the name of the uh, the character, by the way? Did you know the name of the... I did not know the name, no. Well, you did not. You wouldn't have got yourself out no, of I, I was already on the line, so I thought maybe you were going to ask me, but... Uh... Well, I'm, 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 I'm glad I didn't put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> to the central question here, obviously you must have been thrilled to see that kind of numbers, the sort of uh, outpouring of support for this movement, but will it translate into action? Well, I, I certainly hope that it will. I mean, this was a, a, a huge number of people turning out on the streets in Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, and Winnipeg, and Ottawa. I mean, everywhere across the country, by by one count, a million Canadians turned out on Friday to say they want more action on, on climate change. Um, and you're right, we don't have, we, can, we can't turn out in those kind of numbers every Friday, and certainly not every day, but... Um, we have an opportunity to make this become reality, to make this actually have our leaders take action, and that opportunity is the upcoming federal election. And do you think that what we saw in the streets will translate into a difference at the polls? I hope that it will, right? So the, the pollsters are telling us and have been telling us for a while that climate change is, is one of the key issues that Canadians are concerned about when it comes to the election. And this is not a normal thing. I mean, Canadians are always very concerned about climate change. Those numbers have been going up as we've been witnessing more and more impacts from climate change. But this is the first time that I can remember where we're seeing it as a top issue during the election. And these strikes are helping to push it up even higher in terms of its saliency. And so what I'm hoping is that people that are concerned, if they could turn out for that strike, or maybe they couldn't even go because they couldn't get work off or for any number of reasons, they definitely can turn out to vote, and they should be voting for somebody who's going to take action on climate change. Are you frustrated with the the level of conversation about, you know, I just spent an entire show, you know, joking about whether or not you got a license to sell insurance, and of course we talked a lot about blackface, and neither of those issues do anything about our carbon emission levels. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of, of issues, you know, that are that are not as important as the issue of climate change. And I think, you know, um, and Greta makes this very clear in her mind. This is the most important issue, and she thinks all everyone should feel like that. I recognize that not everyone does, but you know, I would say, I mean, the pollsters are telling us Canadians are very concerned. They really want more action. So, you know, the media chases these stories because it's, it, I guess, it sells papers. But you know, Canadians know they're really concerned about climate change. These are the issue, and I hope this is the issue that they show up for and that they vote for on October 21st. Unfortunately, nothing sells newspapers anymore. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's true. The, that is the reality of the, lo- the time it, that we're it living in. It drives the clicks, then. <laughs> it drives the clicks. What, what do you want to see? We have a couple of weeks to go here. What, what do you want to see to come to the forefront? Because I ask you this question. There is obviously, there is the conservatives, and then on the progressive side, you have a number of different plans on climate change. When we start talking about, well, pick the party that you think has the best climate um, plan, if the progressives pick three different ones, then the conservatives are going to win a majority. I mean, we want to see, you know, Canadians go out and show up that they vote for climate change. I definitely cannot tell people who to vote for. As a charity, we're restricted from doing any kind of behavior like that. We are strictly nonpartisan. But there are a number of leaders that are, are promising good climate change plans. Canadians can get educated about what those, which plans are good plans. We have our own climate change plan up on our website that kind of tells Canadians what they should be looking for in, in a good plan. But the highest, the most important thing is that uh, we are strengthening our targets. The current target that Canada has right now is too weak. Uh, and, and so we need to strengthen our targets. A lot of other countries made that commitment last week at, at the United Nations. So we're going to look for a, a stronger target, and we're going to look for a credible plan that gets us there. That's the key thing is how much are we going to cut emissions and by when, and do we have a credible plan that looks like it can deliver on that. Keith Brooks is Programs Director at Environmental Defense. Always enjoy having you on the program. Thanks, Keith. Appreciate you being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're just about to run out of time, but uh, as we wrap up today, I just want to mention this thing that's kind of making a little bit of a sideshow news, that a member of the rebel media has been thrown out, or was thrown out, pardon me, from Andrew Shear's event earlier today, and it just gets weirder and weirder. As he was escorted out... He was, you know, talking about, you know, his rights under free speech and then claims he was hit by Shear's campaign bus when he was leaving the event in Whitby. That's something we're going to stay on top of throughout the course of the day. It just keeps getting weirder, does it not? Give me 